Welcome to Critical Transit. Uh, I have no idea what episode this is, um, but today is Thursday, October 22nd, 2015, and I am joined by on the phone by Nick Pendergrast. He is the one of the co-hosts of Progressive Podcast Australia, and uh, those of you who know, who follow me on Twitter, uh, know that I, I tend to get a little bit outside of uh, public transit, or a lot, and uh, I think that there, like, public transit is one of many issues that are all interconnected, and uh, so I wanted to have uh, Nick on the show talk about some of uh, his experience, and uh, and uh, I was also on his show, uh, Progressive Podcast Australia, which will be out uh, around the same time, so I'll put a link to that. In addition to all of that, Nick is a lecturer in sociology and anthropology at Curtin University in Perth, Western Australia. So Nick, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Th- thanks for joining us. No worries. And here it is actually the 23rd of October. So we're doing a bit of time travel, which is maybe relevant because we're recording right around the time that Back to the Future was set. So we're doing a bit of time travel here. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> um, so, so Nick, uh, I wanted to uh, have you on the show and talk about uh, you. You, um, in addition to a lot of what you've been working on these days, um, you have uh, most of a degree in urban planning. Yep, uh, three quarters of a degree. I did three of the four-year course, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, and what made you uh, give that up? Well, in in third year, we had to do an elective, and actually most of the town planners were quite boring in that they just picked an elective, like a town planning elective, even though you, you could do literally anything from the whole things I was looking into, like, I don't know, like biology and like science and policy. I was like considering, I'm, oh, I've got an elective, I can kind of do any course I want in the whole university. So yeah, again, I was looking like all different fields. I want to do something different. And yeah, what sounded most interesting was a degree, uh, a unit, sorry, in, in sociology. And so I just took that as an elective. We had to do an elective and that sounded the most interesting out of everything. And yeah, just did that one unit and did quite well in it, like, academically that was kind of part of it i'd never done that well in town planning because i just wasn't that into it i was into it some parts more than others i guess but yeah i wasn't that into it but i was kind of really into this and yeah just generally i found that sociology just i really understood what was going on around that time we had uh, like changes to the working laws of workplace relations laws. And I kind of really felt like I understood that in terms of the context of the international economy and the World Trade Organization. I just kind of, stuff I was kind of hearing about in the news and getting more involved and going to protest about it. And I felt like I really understood them from doing that course. So yeah, I just yeah really love sociology. And, and so yeah, after doing that elective, just yeah dropped the degree and, and went over to uh, sociology straight after that semester. That's great, and that's kind of how I found my way into geography myself. Um, so, and and uh, regular listeners will know that uh, the motivating factor for me in uh, doing this work is uh, not just critical transit, but also Transit Matters, a uh, nonprofit organization that I run. Uh, my motiv- my motivation is really uh, with regard to social and economic justice. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in um, just improving quality of life and uh, you know, and then environmental things as well. Um, so I thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about some of that and um, how public transit and um, urban design kind of fits into the whole picture of um, maybe maybe we want to say how uh, how badly we've uh, fucked up our cities and uh, what uh, you know and just just the the structures that we have and I don't know you want to you want to take that and go with it somewhere. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think like, yeah, when we've had this, okay, we've got to solve the environment and generally we've got, okay, we have solved this environmental problem and most people accept that obviously a few people still, oh, it's a conspiracy invented by Al Gore to make himself rich and whatever. <laughs> that, 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 that's around. But most people now, okay, climate change is real. We've got to do something about it. But yeah, a, a lot of uh, environmental you know, focus on how we're addressing this doesn't address the social aspects. So like one thing I often say in my class is like, where's the cheapest place to make some shoes or a pair of sneakers for you guys in the US? Like, where's the cheapest place? Like, okay, you make it in China, it's the cheapest. Okay, where's the cheapest place to make a solar panel? China as well. So we still get these you know, these inequalities, even if we're helping the environment, there's still these inequalities in solar panels, there's harsh chemicals and stuff, which Chinese workers are dealing with. And and it doesn't necessarily, a lot of the solutions don't take into that social concerns. But yeah, as you mentioned, I think in terms of like improving our transport system and making it more environmentally friendly would have big social impacts because yeah, at the moment, 
the people who drive the most tend to be the poorest people. They tend to drive like the furthest and the least efficient ve- least uh, efficient vehicles. So they're they're the ones who can afford to pay the least for transport, but they tend to be paying the most in transport. And yeah, a lot of these solutions that we come up with, electric cars and all, all this stuff, it's yeah, it doesn't yeah deal with any of these social issues. Whereas yeah, things like free public transport or better public transport, better cycle lanes, those kind of things, they could, yeah, have this positive social impact of having these people who, who can't afford to pay for transport actually getting around yeah, cheaper and you know, having more money for other things and to pay rent and those kind of things uh, at the same time is also, yeah, helping the environment as well. So I think that social side is, is something we often neglect when we talk about the environment. And one thing I'm really curious about is is how we deal with um, how we sort of get people to to care for for lack of a better phrase. I mean, we we see you know people people say good things about the environment and whatever, but you know when it comes down to it, um, the people really just don't seem to be that interested in in uh, climate change or or any other uh, environmental factors a- aspects um, to changing their behavior. And I should say it's not just the behavior. It's also the structure because you can, uh, you know, care as much as you want, but, um, you know, we have a system that caters to cars. And I have this clip that I want to share here. Uh, it's by Becca Bohr, B-O-R, and I will uh, try to find the link. And she talks about the history and how we got to this point um, and also, you know, what we need to do to, to uh, think beyond blaming the individual and start uh, really... You know, there's a lot that needs to be done for the for the system, and so you know, a lot of times we get into this discussion about um, is it, um, you know, like individuals are to blame, which to some extent I think is true, and it's one of the points that I've been making. I think we we all need to take some level of responsibility for our choices, um, but on the other hand, you know, we have a we have a system in society. You know, we don't, you know, the rent is going through the roof, and we don't have free health care, and it's hard to find a job, and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's very difficult to make these decisions. So I want to play this clip and, uh, and uh, we'll talk about it on the other side. I want to use two examples of government and corporate action that fundamentally change the way society is structured so that we're forced to be extremely wasteful and forced to make decisions that are detrimental to the environment. These two examples are the automobile and the plastic industries. So the automobile. In a famous report to the U.S. Senate, it was stated, in terms of high energy, consumption, accident rates, contribution to pollution, and displacement of urban amenities, motor vehicle travel is possibly the most inefficient method of transport devised by modern man. So how have we gone to the point where car travel is 90% of travel in the United States? It's, this was not an, accident, an accidental plan. In 1930 to 1950s, GM, along with Standard Oil and Firestone Tires, systematically bought up many of the nation's streetcar lines and converted them into bus lines. Meanwhile, GM used its monopolistic control of bus production in the Greyhound Bus Company on the one hand and its monopoly on the production of locomotives on the other to actively replace bus and rails by private car. Essentially, it undercut itself in order to switch the nation's reliance from bus and rail to a reliance on cars. However, they couldn't do this alone. The post-war government subsidies in the form of the Federal Highway Act, which allowed for the creation of suburbs on a mass scale, allowed people to then, one, need cars, because there were no more, there were no more bus, uh, bus lines and, ra- and rail lines. Um, and at the same time, the government stopped funding, or at least declined in, in funding, um, having subsidies for public transit. In the first four years after World War II, Americans purchased 21.4 million cars. While living without a car might actually raise your standard of living, if particularly if you live in Chicago and have to brave the traffic on a daily basis, it might make your life, your life less stressful because of the disgusting lack of investment in public transit, it's not actually possible for workers always to get to their work without a car. When I first moved to Chicago this past year, I didn't have a car. It took me over an hour and a half each way to get from my house to the school that I was working at. And so when I drive there, it's 20 minutes. So it was like insane for me to invest, you know, three hours more in transit um, with my already crazy teaching schedule. 
Instead of seeing workers who have to buy cars as the problem, and instead of thinking that if we just, a few of us bike or walk or take the train, that everything can be solved, we actually have to fight for public transit. We have to fight for a restructuring of those old of the sort of old system and actually fight for more than that. There's giant swaths of this city, and I'm sure it's true, and people can speak about where, they, where they're from, but, but particularly in the south and west side of the city, which are also black and brown neighborhoods, that are completely off the Chicago Transit Authority grid. You can't get to them by the, by the CTA. Um, not only do we have to fight for inner city transit, but also high-speed light rail that can connect our cities efficiently, and that'll drive down on intracontinental short flights that businessmen and then also other people take um, constantly. And those are extremely disastrous for the environment. So, you know, in, in the clip where she's talking about the um, importance of, of understanding the, the structures that, that are affecting people's behavior, um, and have certain how certain neighborhoods get served better than others, and um, it just just the way that the system works, and uh, and issues of, of urban design, and so we if we're trying to change people's behavior, we we have a couple of things that we can use. We have sort of sort of the well, we I mean we can change the structure, and um, but in you know without doing that, we have kind of the carrots and we have the sticks, and a lot of times the sticks are like well, let's just charge people more money to park their car or we'll charge more money for gas. And I sort of wonder if, you know, I, I have a really hard time with these because maybe you have a situation where the that's still favoring the rich and the rich are going to keep driving and the poor are the ones who get shafted and without really reforming the structure, maybe, you know, what does that really solve? Um, and so I, I wanted to get your take on, on that as somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about these things. Yeah, I think you know, one interesting thing from the clip is that she actually, I don't know if, if uh, you picked that up or any listeners picked that up, but she actually like overestimated their car travel and underestimated the public transport travel, which people tend to do actually, again, from town planning to go, I knew that, yeah, yes, okay, public transport can take longer sometimes, but yeah, people tend to think, oh, the car takes shorter than it actually does, and they tend to think the bus or, or train or whatever will take longer. But she, she said it takes 1.5 hours each way if she took public transport and 20 minutes if she drove. Uh, so that would be and, – and then she said, so if she take public transport, that's three hours extra, but actually it was three hours total for public transport, so it's actually two hours and 20 minutes extra. So I think even that shows that, yes, okay, the system is you know encouraging us not to – yeah, take public transport, but yeah, we, we probably overestimate that as well. And yeah, I don't know if that was kind of a subconscious thing that you did or whatever, but um, yeah, I think in, in terms of this idea of yeah, changing the system versus changing ourselves, um, I, I don't know, I think that, yeah, like, I don't know, I, and again, I'm curious to get your perspective as someone who's actually worked with these agencies, but I think it is important to to point out that I think individual choices can sometimes influence the broader system. So, again, I'd like to get your take on as somebody who's kind of worked in these agencies, but I'd imagine, like, yeah, at sometimes you get, okay, austerity, we need to cut back, even if people need the bus. But in general, surely, if more people are using a certain bus route, then they're more likely to run that more frequently or at least keep that route going, whereas if no one's using it, then they might shut that route down or, or reduce the frequency or whatever. Is that, is that somewhat correct? Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, that's just a general idea, although there's, there's limits yeah. in either direction, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, th I think yeah. also more generally on that idea of income, yeah, like one thing, again, uh, if I would have finished my town planning degree, one, one thing I was keen to write my sort of final thesis on, you have to big, do a big report at the end, or I would have had to do a big report at the end, was, yeah, sustainable transport, but without sort of discriminating against low-income earners, because... Yeah, as I mentioned, a lot of the people who drive the furthest are kind of stuck in these suburbs with, you know, sometimes no public transport, sometimes, you know, very limited, you know, once an hour or something. So, for example, where I live now, which is an inner city inner city suburb in, in Perth, Australia, you know, we've got a bus stop down the road for us, you know, every 15 minutes, like during the week, 
you know, on weekdays, we can get the bus. And yeah, it's about 10 minutes into the city on the bus. So it's like, I can say, oh, great, I'm using public transport. But the reality is someone who's living in the outer suburbs probably can't do that or is at least less likely to do that because, yeah, again, they might be on a one-hour frequency and it might take them two hours to get in the city or one hour or whatever. So, yeah, there are those kind of uh, factors. So, yeah, some solutions like, as you said, like increasing the cost of petrol and increasing the cost of parking while I don't like necessarily oppose those things, and particularly if we just increase it by a bit and put that money into public transport and those kind of things, I think can be good. But yeah, if we just purely focus on those and kind of keep this sort of unequal based city as it is and just purely focus on increasing the cost of the sticks, as you said, and yeah, increasing the cost of parking and those kind of things, well, then yeah, rich people carry on doing that. They can drive around easily, but they're the ones who probably could get the bus more easily. The poorer people who are driving and yeah, maybe could get around the bus, but it's much harder aren't, um, yeah, they still have to do that, but they're just paying a lot more. And so some, some solutions which might impact everyone rather than focusing on more affecting more low-income earners are things like reducing the parking overall uh, and yeah, using like less parking as a way to yeah, encourage less car travel and also actually welcoming traffic congestion. One thing I came across in my course is that we often think, oh, traffic congestion, we have to fix it. And I was saying, like, from an environmental planning standpoint, no, we don't want to fix it because that's actually a good way to encourage people to use other forms of transport. I got stuck in, you know, peak hour traffic. I might ride my bike tomorrow or get the bus tomorrow. That's a, yeah, it's an interesting way to to, uh, look at it. And I've read about that where, you know, you kind of want traffic and traffic congestion because it means there's somewhere to go. Yeah. So And, yeah. I, I, I just think that's so far out of the sort of political discussions, though, if, if you come out and said that, that you want traffic congestion, it's always like, you know, we're the government, we're going to fix traffic congestion. So it's probably going to be a tough sell, I do admit. <laughs> I sort of have a hard time with that, too, that, you know, the governments now are sort of recognizing that we have we have this influx of people coming into cities, which we, we never used to. And now we're, you know, for, for you know, many decades, people were, you know, people who could afford it were leaving the cities and um, cities were very poor and, and run down. And, you know, but now that we have these people moving into cities, cities are realizing, oh, we have all these new people coming in and we need to, we need to accommodate and we need the infrastructure and um, we can't keep building more roads. So uh, we need to get people to use transit. And I sort of, I'm sort of uncomfortable with the idea that, the, you know, the government is coming and saying, you know, this is the way you, you should uh, behave. So I don't know if you've thought about, about that at all. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that the, yeah, I mean, I guess it's coming from the government, but it's, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I kind of get that anti-government mentality, but I mean, I think it's also just, you know, yes, okay, some governments are saying that, but it's also just, you know, if we look at the science on climate change, like it is clear we need to do something. And yeah, I think that the governments, like particularly here in Australia, like, yeah, okay, there's a bit of token stuff of, yeah, okay, we need to have more bus lanes and those kind of things, but yeah, from listening to your podcast and pointing out, like, actually be critical where you see a bus lane, think of, is it actually needed? And, yeah, and looking at around, like, my city of Perth, it's like every time you see a bus lane, it's where it's not needed. And every place where it would be useful, they don't want to put it in because they don't want to stop the car traffic. So, yeah, I think that the, yeah, the government isn't being too forceful in telling us we can't drive cars. I think they're much more going the other way in that there's some kind of token thing. We'll see a few more bus lanes here and there where they're not needed. But overall, they're basically just saying, you know, carry on as usual. And actually our government, our federal government anyway, is actually, you know, has all the discussions been on about roads for the future and roads, roads, roads. We've had a new prime minister that might change slightly. But, yeah, at least the past couple of years, it's been all about all the roads we can build. So they're not really pushing that at all. Yeah. And uh, speaking of government being uh, not too super effective, um, we one of the issues that uh, that we've had and I believe you're, you're having this too, is that when we have all these people moving into cities, we need to build the infrastructure to accommodate those people. So on the one hand, it means good transport, um, but it also means other things, other infrastructure like, like housing, for example. Um, we have here in Boston, the population has increased 10% in the past 10 years, and uh, we're getting a few luxury condo developments, um, and we're really not, you know, we're not building housing, and 
Um, on, on the one hand, it's that the private market is just not building housing for working class people. And on the other hand, anytime somebody tries to build a big uh, housing complex, uh, you know, a big apartment building or something, uh, the neighbors sort of sort of lose their minds. And um, I, I think you've been dealing with this issue, too. Cause, um, do you have thoughts on how do we uh, sort of move beyond that? Yeah, like we, we have like local elections here, local like right, like in our little local area. And, you know, I'm kind of open to voting in that. Like a lot of people don't. And we've actually got compulsory voting here in Australia, but only at the, the state and federal level. So the local level, like our local council, you don't have to vote. And most people don't. But I, I have been like reading the things that are coming in because if they're actually saying things like we'll be putting in more bus lanes, more you know, cycle lanes, and you know, things I care about, I would actually be prepared to vote, but it's all just crap about, oh, I've been in this area for 20 years and I'm a member of the local clubs and I've got four kids or just, you know, it's just stuff I, like I don't care about it at all. And, and yeah, but when they have brought up these issues, it's actually been a negative way because, yeah, what one thing we've had here is that this area is, you know, fairly... I mean, maybe not like low income, like leave it. We live in an apartment here, but most of it's kind of just like residential housing, you know, fairly big blocks, like not huge compared to the outer suburbs, but yeah, fairly sort of big, like, you know, typical family house, you know, four bedrooms, two bathrooms or whatever. And yeah, that's starting to change because we're having some high rise development in here. And one thing that, yeah, one of the local members or, you know, someone running to be mayor of our local area actually raise the like opposition to high-rise development as part of their sustainability platform and that just kind of blew my mind in a way yeah i mean it makes a lot of sense you know having to, to use the uh, existing resources and space as efficiently as possible and i think that's one of yeah. our one of the biggest problems that we have is that we've we've you know given everything over even in our cities where you know the vast majority of people don't drive in a place like boston or new york you know, where we've just given 80% of the space the least efficient mode and it's just, you know, it's coming back to bite us. Yeah, and we've got the same thing happen here. Like Perth, we've got, you know, hugely increasing populations. And, okay, so we have to either, you know, keep it as we are, keep our suburbs as we are and just keep on sprawling up further and further out and obviously, you know, clearing more land that animals need and you know, leaving us, like, further commutes and you know, having the city sprawling and further car use and, it just seems obvious that we need more, not even necessarily high-rise, well, I'm not opposed to high-rise, but, yeah, more high-density development. It's just a, yeah, a basic fact that if we want to avoid that urban sprawl, then which we do need to do for environmental reasons, regardless of what we think about living high-density or whatever, we need to do that. And it's just, again, so far from the discussion and, again, talking about sustainability in terms of opposing this high-rise development, you know, it's bizarre. And what about the flip side of that, which is sort of, sort of, you know, that that's sort of like, you know, people who have more money and political power saying, you know, I don't want more development in, in my community. And a lot of times it's racist, you know, I don't want those people. Uh, but what about the flip side of that, which is this, this sort of understanding that the city is gentrifying rapidly and the... You know, we need we need more housing and more infrastructure. But one of the things that I hear from some of the traditionally disadvantaged neighborhoods in, in Boston is, uh, you know, don't 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 give us anything. Don't I, I don't, don't improve my shitty transit because then like all the middle class white people are going to move in here and then I'm going to have to move out. Mm. Yeah, I think in in, in our case. Uh... Yeah, it's definitely not a case of I don't want those people in my neighbourhood and stuff because this is, yeah, and, and this is one problem with the high-rise, even though I'm in favour of, you know, more high-rise and more, you know, high-density development because, again, I don't I oppose the urban sprawl that we've got, like we're one of the worst cities in the world for that here in Perth. But, yeah, th this is all rich housing. It's uh, like I can't remember the exact, like a million dollars or something to buy one of these apartments. So, yeah, I think we definitely should be criticizing this, you know, not because it's high rise, but because it's it's unequal. And yeah, so we should be criticizing that, but all the discussions totally from the wrong perspective in my opinion. So it's all about, yeah, this is it's uh yeah, it doesn't fit the character of the area, which is very low down on my priority list when it comes 
yeah, the sustainability of the world and, and those kind of things. But it's all from those perspectives. But it's not about well, you know, this is you know, th- this apartments like it's it's quite well designed in that this is in the inner city area. It's near shops. There's good public transport. All these kind of things. So I think it is a good place for high rise and high density development because it gives people access to services and can sustain the bus routes and the public transport infrastructure and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's a good development, but it's. Uh, yeah, only people who don't need this stuff, like these people who can afford that, they could live in the outer suburbs and drive their cars everywhere and easily afford that. And those who, you know, are, are stuck in the outer suburbs because they're poorer and, yeah, paying a lot for transport, they, there's no way they could afford to buy this development. So, yeah, I think that's where the criticism of this should be, of the, yeah, of this sort of... Um, I won't say gentrification because it's already we live in a, a wealthy suburb already, so it's not really gentrification, but it's uh, yeah a, a lack of access to low income housing in this yeah really good you know the city you know close to services housing that you know it would be great if more poorer people had access to that. Do you think that the government should say okay, well the private sector is not is not building the housing that we need? Should the government just go and build a bunch of housing? And like I've, I thought, maybe the government should go and build a bunch of housing and then rent it out, and you know, use the use like a one percent increase on the rent or something to keep building more housing. Um, I don't know if that's the way to go, or if there's other ways to sort of increase the housing supply but also keep it affordable. Yeah, I think that would help. And yeah, in Australia, it's changed so much because again, from doing my town planning degree, we were looking at some plan, I think it was called like the Stevenson Hepburn plan. It's like from the 60s or 70s, I think it was. And basically these planners came over from the UK and like planned how Perth should be. And they at that time were living in like public housing, like government funding, government funded housing. And they were like, you know, wealthy, privileged, like planners coming over from the um, from Europe, from from the UK. And now, like in terms of public housing, it still exists, but it's pretty much non-existent. And there's, you know, 10 year waiting lists and those kind of things. So. Yeah, it's become something that was kind of like, oh, yeah, it's just kind of like a normal thing to live in public housing. It was very widespread to as we've kind of had this like austerity and neoliberalism and putting all our faith in the market. It's become something that, you know, only the you know, super disadvantaged can live in. And even if you are super disadvantaged, you're probably not disadvantaged enough because, again, there's such a small amount. And even if you can get it, you'll be waiting around for it for years. So, yeah, I definitely think, yeah, public housing would be one way to, to help with those issues. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm always a big fan of, of that. Um, what, what One of the things that um, I wanted to connect this sort of because I have – you know, a lot of people that I work with in, in the transit field, they're, they're very, very narrowly focused on public transit. And I think I was saying at the beginning that, you know, I, I'm involved in this because of social ju- social and environmental justice concerns. Um, how do we, do you have any thoughts on uh, how public transit connects to some of the other issues that, that you and I care about and we talk about a lot? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess like from doing, again, most of a town planning degree, most people in that course were just doing it because it was a job, really. And I think, again, transit advocates would be different to that. And they so the something they care about. But a lot of people working in it, I think, would be, again, they might care about it to a degree, but it's really just another job for them. And, and when we did a unit, which was, it was it wasn't elective, it was like a force unit we had to do, but it was more like sociology, it was like, society and culture or something like that we learned about like indigenous issues and disability issues and you know wide range of social issues and i found it really interesting but most of the town planners were like what the hell are we doing like just give us a development application and we can say if the shed is like more than five meters from the back fence or something like that you know they, they weren't concerned about these social issues so yeah in terms of people like working in it they often yeah they didn't necessarily have a particular care about it in terms of transit advocates I don't know. I think in terms of advocating for transit, like, yeah, like one thing, you know, you and you and I would both be hugely in favour would be free public transport, for example. And I think that would make a huge, huge difference. But again, even if we do have free public transport, it wouldn't necessarily change the fact that, again, like where I live, I'm on like 15 minute public transport, 15 minute frequency bus every 15 minutes. 
Whereas, you know, poorer people, again, that would definitely benefit them if they get the bus for free. But the way we design our cities, which, or in, in Perth at least, uh, is, you know, poor, poor people all live in the, the outer suburbs or, mo- you know, generally it's poorer inner city people live in the inner city suburbs, which are, you know, much more access to public transport and, you know, much more shops and all those kind of things. And so, yeah, even these transport solutions, if we don't actually get rid of this economic inequality and change this sort of unequal way we've changed, you know, changing from a, a social perspective we won't necessarily get the full gains and we won't necessarily even address the transport issues because again okay the bus might be free but it only comes once an hour because this is like low density you can't sustain bus routes out there they're often empty uh, out, out in those suburbs so we won't even necessarily address the environmental problems without dealing with this economic inequality and access to housing and all these other things we care about and what do we do about the suburbs I mean, it's been suggested that, you know, some people say, you know, maybe we just write them off. And I've heard, I've heard also, you know, that there's, there's, I know there's a lot of efforts to sort of retrofit the suburbs, but um, not really in much of a meaningful way. And I'm sort of stuck as, as an advocate, I'm sort of, you know, I really focus in the cities, but, um, you know, when, when I go to the suburbs for one reason or another, like, you know, it can be very dangerous to walk into just to get the bus over there. And, um, you know, and obviously, like you said, services are in weak ran and the design of the places is really hostile to pedestrians. And, um, it, are there things that we can do to the suburbs? Yeah, well, I mean, well, one like, reaction to that is that, you know, back, back in the sort of 60s and, and 70s and or particularly 80s, it was like, you know, cars were the way to go. And we'll have these, you know, cul-de-sac suburbs, which are really quiet, you know, move away from the old-fashioned grid pattern where you can get around easy and, and easily add bus routes and these kind of things. Like, we, we moved away from that. And then, like, the last few decades, it's like, oh, shit, that didn't work too well. Like, even things like the fact, like, cul-de-sacs are like, quite dangerous in terms of crime because no one's walking around and, you know, there's none of that passive surveillance or casual surveillance from the streets so people's houses get broken into and we're all disconnected from each other because we're just driving everywhere and we don't sort of past neighbours in the streets. So it's got all these like social issues beyond obviously uh, probably the most important is the environmental issues in that even if we love it socially, it's not uh, viable sustainably, but uh, environmentally. But yeah, we've kind of had a, like a move away from that idea. And so we need to have like a return to sort of, you know, more old fashioned cities that are like walkable and access to public transport and those kind of things. So there has been like a move in, 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 in planning in that direction, which is positive and more infill development. I think in Perth, the plan is like 60% infill and 40% urban sprawl. Like I'd probably have 100% infill and 0% urban sprawl if I was in charge, but at least they're kind of acknowledging we need actually infill development, not just you know, continually sprawling, uh, sprawling suburbs. But again, the problem, like you know, we have certain suburbs uh, like Subiaco and, and East Perth, which are inner city suburbs in Perth, which are designed like that. They're more high density. They're close to public transport, all these things. But again, it's it's the, the housing, besides like a tiny bit of token low-income housing, it's all for wealthy people who can afford that. So again, it's great for them and it's well-designed, but people don't have the access. So yeah, I don't know what we can do. I guess, yeah, I think all those, those kind of developments, they are heading in the right direction. They are the right thing. It's just a matter of, yeah, how can we plan these, these better planned things, which again, are doing a lot of the right things, but make them open to people other than just wealthy people who can afford to live in those neighborhoods. Do we, I mean, we, we still have a lot of really segregated cities over here. I don't, I don't know if it's a similar problem or what, what is the, well, I should ask you this, um, because the, you know, countries are very different. Um, what is the uh, racial situation in Australian cities? Well, yeah, it kind of varies from city to city. Like Melbourne, for example, is much more multicultural than Perth, where where I live, which is quite a a conservative city. I think in in Australia it is about, I don't know, I think something like two-thirds are like Anglo-Saxon, like white people, and then obviously there's there's kind of a a mix of other ethnic groups. So it, it does vary from suburb to suburb as well. Like here 
in Como, where I live, very inner city suburb. It is, yeah, very, very white suburb. But yeah, then outer suburb, you'll get you know, a lot more you know, migrant communities and yeah, different communities, even you know, suburbs not too far away, like which are lower income. Uh, there are more yeah, migrants and, and recent migrants and those kind of things. So yeah, it is a bit of a mix, but it varies. Yeah, it varies very much from place to place. But one thing which I think yeah, does seem to be different is that yeah, in America, I hear a lot about like poor, poor communities in the inner city, whereas that doesn't seem to be the case here. It seems to be more the issue of the poor people are stuck on the outer, outer suburbs. Has that always been like that? Uh, no, it hasn't. Like, a, a, again, those, uh, those like uh, su- suburbs I mentioned, like East Perth and Subiaco, which are inner city and, and very well planned, like very nice suburbs, very rich suburbs as well. Um, yeah, I think East Perth used to be an industrial area. Subiaco used to be quite a poor area. So, yeah, that, that was different in the past. But I think also just because Perth is such a sort of a, you know, relatively quiet and very sort of car-dominated city, it is, like, relatively easy to get around your car, like, even in peak hour traffic. Like, people from Melbourne and Sydney, like, the other side of Australia, that they laugh at our peak hour traffic. It is pretty, like, minor in comparison. So because it's, like, quite easy to get around the city in general, like, via car, I think there's not such a, like, a, a stigma of living in the inner city. It's more a positive thing that you're closer to everything. So, yeah, I, I don't think... It's that negative thing of, of living near the city, even though most people don't live like in the city itself. Yeah, I mean, we've had definitely, you know, historically it's been where, where poorer people, you know, were kind of stuck in the cities, um, you know, because they weren't able to, to move out to the suburbs uh, where the middle class and upper class people were moving. But, you know, now, mm-hmm. now you have all the people who uh, want to be able to, a lot of people want to be in the cities now because it's, uh, it's appealing. And so, you know, now you have the population growing. And, yeah, we do have this where... Um, you know, poor people are, are getting pushed farther and farther out. Uh, but we also have, it's very common where we have, um, it's been Boston. Boston is a, is a good example of this where, um, you know, we have whole huge neighborhoods that are, you know, overwhelmingly black and have very, very poor transit and poor services. And, you know, some of these are starting to change. These areas are starting to gentrify. Um, and then people are getting pushed like far, far out because, you don't get pushed to the suburbs because this, the original suburbs are, you know, I mean, that's where the rich people live. Rich people don't want you over there. So you get pushed mm. to like the next layer of cities, like an hour away. And people, I was just talking to somebody the other day who was saying that, um, the, one of the, uh, neighborhood health centers said that most of their patients were coming from work, like or had originally lived nearby, but were now coming from like an hour away and, you know, they were staying because they had their doctors and whatever. And they said that, like, half the appointments were had to be canceled or postponed because of, uh, you know, somebody was stuck in transit and wasn't going to make it or something like that. And I thought that was a really powerful illustration of, of how we've, uh, you know, sort of we're stratifying our cities. Yeah, well, we were in the U.S., me and Katie were in uh, the U.S. recently. And, yeah, we did sort of come across just from doing some of the walking tours and stuff, like some of the more sort of political ones were talking about that stuff and yeah in in portland for example they were kind of talking about like yeah people of color and african-american people have like a sort of a a community and then it becomes very cool and then so white people all move in and then they kind of get moved somewhere else but then that place becomes like cool and and yeah richer people come in and that the way that yeah in portland specifically yeah sort of um african-american people were just kind of getting bounced around the city because yeah because of this kind of gentrification that you've been talking about yeah and um it's it's a it's a definitely a, a big issue and i'm i'm stuck for uh for solutions to it um but i mean maybe you know it's just a matter of of uh getting you know better transport all around um have you i think you were involved a while ago in a uh it was a some kind of motorway expansion yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. There, there is one in Perth, and actually, it just got environmental approval today. Like, it's kind of a joke that we've even got an environmental minister from our government who doesn't care about the environment at all. But the federal government has has approved it. So, yeah, this is uh, it's called the Row Highway Development, and it's basically this yeah wetland, like really pristine wetland. We, we've walked we've walked around it, and there's like so many birds, so many, yeah, so so many animals all like living there, and they're going to put a highway like directly through this this wetland 
And one thing I didn't even know is that like this is a huge wetland, um, and but yet it's only I can't remember the exact figure, but only a small proportion, like five percent or something. It's a small portion of what it used to be. So it used to be absolutely massive. It's already actually been, you know. Got, gotten rid of through development and they're going to put a, a yeah development right through the middle of this wetland and apparently that will have no environmental impact um and so yeah that that's just that's just being being approved it's going to link up with like a freight development basically but yeah that's just it's just devastating to hear that and yeah we're looking into yeah what we can do to oppose it but it's kind of it's already been given approval so yeah i, I don't know but it's just I guess, like, as someone who's concerned, like, not just about the environment as a whole, but also sort of from an animal perspective or animal rights perspective, that all the animals who are going to be, you know, killed, displaced, harmed by this development as well, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty devastating. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea that the that the government is actually thinking about about accommodating new people, you know, or people moving, um, because that's something that we really don't seem to be doing over here. Um, but, I mean, with that... Um, with that aside, I mean, it, it's, you know, yeah, there's, there's definitely big impacts. And, and, um, one, one of the things that I've always struggled with is, um, this idea that we, we need to keep growing and there's always, you know, we always have to, to grow and we have to have good infrastructure to support growth. And, um, can we ever get to a point where we're not growing the quote unquote economy? Um, I'd like to think so, but I don't think we can under capitalism because if we're not growing, we're crashing. <laughs> you know, there's a recession and that has lots of harmful impacts. So, yeah, I think like the degrowth movement is really important. And even though it's, it's not kind of doesn't generally label itself as an anti-capitalist movement, but I think it really is because, again, capitalism is dependent on this growth. We're either growing or we're you know, in recession, we're, cr- we're crashing. So I think it is kind of inherently an anti-capitalist movement. But, yeah, I think it's just, you know, all this this growth is has got to come from somewhere and that growth comes from your know, increased spending and increased consumption, all these things, which all have an environmental impact. So to think we can kind of keep growing and, and keep expanding and somehow, you know, reduce our impact on the environment and address climate change, I think is uh, totally missing the point. Yeah. Um, so, anything, um, anything else that we didn't get to, or that, that you wanted to bring up before we um, close out the show? Yeah, sure. Well, I did, just one thing on that sort of, yeah, the animals and thing. I sort of concerned about the animals and the environment. Like again, having. Yeah, solutions like electric cars, for example, like not only do they not address the class issues and that people can't afford them, and even if they can afford them, they're still driving a lot more because they're in the outer suburbs in Australia anyway. But also, again, whether we're driving electric cars or, you know, oil-based cars, whatever, we're still, if we keep kind of driving more and expanding this road network, again, we're going to see things like this road highway development in Perth, which is, again, going straight through a wetland to... Yeah, hopefully, in theory, save about five minutes of travel time or something like that. And yeah, so it doesn't necessarily change these issues. We actually need to challenge car use more generally. And yeah, it was interesting actually seeing something in in Germany. They're actually doing um, like bridges over the roads for animals. And you know, I think that is that is a good thing. And yeah, we definitely should be doing that to protect animals getting hit by by cars and that kind of thing. But also. Again, challenging this growth—not just the growth of the economy, but the growth of the the transport network, or particularly the obviously car-based transport network. The growth of cars, the growth of more and more roads, has a big environmental impact. Even if you put aside what the cars themselves are running on. There's a, a person who um, I follow, and uh, his name is Chuck Marone. He runs uh, this organization called Strong Towns, and basically, what what they advocate is that the that we've built ourselves an infrastructure that is just so big and we can't, he mostly focuses on uh, suburbs, but it's, it's like we, we've built so much uh, and then we, you know, we can't afford to pay for it with the, with the systems that we have to, to raise revenue right now. And uh, maybe that's sort of a, a euphemism for kind of everything in our society that we need to just kind of scale back and give some back to nature. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think yeah, I think degrowth is the way to go. Yeah, like degrow, like yeah, it's cut back on urban sprawl, cut back on yeah, things like you know consumer spending and all this stuff. It's always like whenever on like yeah, Christmas, you get like some pundit, some economist coming on the TV and like 
oh no, consumer like consumer spending at Christmas has gone down. Like what a what a shame. I'm like that's a good thing. Like for the environment, that's what we need. But yeah, we're always kind of hooked onto this growth mentality. It's like uh, reminds me of the uh, the I think it's called Growth Busters. It was uh, you know they they do this thing every every uh, Thanksgiving. You know we have that Black Friday here in the, in the U.S. where you're supposed to go oh, chop chop chop. You know and it's like this yeah this ridiculous consumerist thing. And uh, it sort of reminds me of that. They, you know, all the clips and and uh, they talk about how the, uh, you know, the world is uh, essentially gone to shit. So. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen that one, but yeah, I agree. Growth is bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, with with all that said, uh, thank you, Nick, for for doing this. Um, is there a uh, where, where can people find out more about you and your work? Um, the best place to go is just check out the podcast site and that also has links to other stuff like my writing and stuff. So go to progressivepodcastaustralia.com. So it's just progressivepodcastaustralia or one word.com and you can hear me discuss a wide range of issues with my partner Katie and other people, including Jeremy. So yeah, you can hear me and Jeremy discuss bullshit jobs and escaping nine to five work and yeah, that, that kind of stuff. So yeah, check that out. Thanks, and uh, you have uh, helped me clarify some of uh, the questions that have been floating around my head for a long time. So, okay, good deal. It's good to talk about this. As I say, I've kind of like have all this like nerdy knowledge from doing part of that degree, but I don't really have much uh, output for it. Besides, yeah, always like giving my partner Katie lots of like nerdy facts about public transport and town planning and stuff. So yeah, it's good to have a an outlet for that and and yeah i I really enjoy your critical transit show and i I thought i was kind of on top of transport issues but i wasn't anywhere close so i've learned a lot from (laughs) listening to this show so yeah thanks for that excellent and you can call me uh you want to geek out about transit you can call me anytime we'll do this again (laughs) okay cool (laughs) yeah you're you're the right person for it thanks again to nick pendergrass for joining me find out more about him at progressivepodcastaustralia.com And I'll put a link to that and to his other work. Also, I was interviewed on his podcast uh, by him at progressivepodcastaustralia.com. That's uh, episode 114, and I put a link in the show notes. So uh, check that out. We talk about a range of things, uh, mostly not related to transport. So uh, I think you'll find that interesting. Um, Those of you who follow me on Twitter know that uh, I, I branch out and I connect transit to all of the social and economic justice issues. So think uh, you'll be interested in, in hearing what I have to say over there. And uh, just a couple things I wanted to mention here. Um, we, if For those of you who are in Boston or following my, my work in Boston, as you know, I run a transit advocacy organization called Transit Matters, and we're having a big event this week, uh, and uh, this Wednesday, October 28th, uh, called Beer in Transit. We do this once a month. And we're welcoming former Governor Michael Dukakis. And those of you who are not in Boston might remember Dukakis as the Democratic presidential nominee in uh, 1988, I believe. Um, Yeah, he was governor of Massachusetts in the 80s, maybe I think twice. Um, And he presided over a number of important public transit expansions. And he is now working with another former governor, Bill Weld, a Republican, to uh, push the north-south rail link, which is sort of similar to Philadelphia's uh, center city connector. Basically, we have two two rail stations, north station and south station, bringing in trains from all over the region. And, uh, you know, New York has Grand Central and Penn Station. Philly had uh, Suburban and Market East. And, uh, you know, other cities have have similar things. Uh, And so we are, yeah, Chicago is like a zillion different train stations that that aren't connected. And so this is a project to connect them, which will not only make it so that trains can run through, it will relieve congestion from trains having to sit and lay over at the station, and it will create a new transit option for getting, moving within the city. And you'll be able to use that, that transit line to, for short local trips as well. Uh, like a subway-like frequencies and a subway fare by combining all the commuter rail lines into, you know, they're running together and the frequency is going to be very high. So this is going to be a very good thing. We're talking about other transit investment as well and networking. So if you're in Boston, come on out Wednesday at 5.30. See transitmatters.info for more information on that. And I'm also going to share a, uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to put it here, but I'm definitely going to put it there on Transit Matters. Uh, my uh, recording of my discuss- my panel, excuse me, my talk at a panel on uh, 
transit funding uh, this past weekend, hosted by a group called Budget for All, which is uh, fighting for public investment in important things like infrastructure and healthcare and jobs and, you know, basically like things that are not like bombing and killing people. So, uh, yeah, there was somebody talking about how uh, the U.S. military still spends, you know, we spend a ton of things on the military that are like completely useless and the military itself says that we don't need these, but, you know, they keep these Republican congressmen and then Democrats too, uh, keep pushing these things because they're like pieces of them that are made in every state. And so therefore they push it as a jobs program. Uh, meanwhile, we can't afford to hire bus drivers. So, uh, I don't understand, but, uh, but anyway, I wanted to, to plug that. And, uh, if you're listening to this show, I'd love to hear from you. I know critical transit has had, uh, some ups and downs over the years, um, mostly downs in the past year or so, uh, has not been very frequent because of my other work has often taken precedence. Um, but I'd like to get it more frequent, and I, I'm interested to, to know from those of you who are still following along um, or have just found the show, perhaps, and I'd like to know more about what uh, you're interested in hearing, um, what you want us to talk about. Um, you have something to share on the show. Uh, we're all very interested in all of that as we try to move transit forward. And uh, you can check out, if you go to transitmatters.info, you can find the the vision that we have for transit in Boston, and it has a lot of parallels to the situations in a lot of places. People are moving more and more to cities. Uh, the population of Boston has increased 10% in the past year. Uh, I believe New York City has had like an additional million people in, in the past 10 or 15 years. And so, you know, the population is growing, and we're not investing in infrastructure to keep up with it. Um, we, you know, obviously aren't expanding the road network, uh, which we probably shouldn't do. It's inefficient. Um, but we're not expanding transit. Um, we haven't expanded housing. So there's a very severe housing crisis and people aren't able to afford to, to live here. People are moving as far as an hour outside the city. And uh, we, so we really need to, to deal with these, these issues, among, among others, too. Um, like the budget for all folks are saying, you know, we, um, health care is still the number one cause of bankruptcy in the U.S. So uh, that's important that we... Uh, deal with that and have uh, universal single-payer health care, among other things. Um, I was interviewed um, on Nick's podcast, Progressive Podcast Australia, which you should check out. Uh, that his episode, it was episode 114, and I put a link in the show notes. And, uh, you know, we, one of the things we talked about there is the, uh, the basic income, the idea of um, giving everybody enough money to survive basic survival not you know it's not going to pay for vacations or you know elaborate things you're know, going out to dinner every night or whatever but you know it'll be, do the basics and sort of free people from the constraints of uh, having to work for an awful boss or you know having to put up with with terrible situations whether that be you know domestic violence or you know neighborhood living in a neighborhood that's not safe or or whatever it is and uh, sort of eliminate poverty and, uh, and then you kind of tax to get it back, and you, you find that there's a... And I know you're saying, oh, people just take the money and be lazy, and I, I disagree with that um, for many reasons, and I, I discuss it in the, in the show. Um, so go and check that out. That's progressivepodcastaustralia.com. And uh, so, yeah, get in touch. Feedback at criticaltransit.com is the place to reach me. And you can, yeah, go visit criticaltransit.com. I, I do tweet a lot, so um, especially compared to this uh, production of the podcast because that takes a lot of time. But um, I do some blog posts occasionally. And um, so you're usually tweeting, you know, every, every day or two. So, um, you know, check that out. Uh, just Critical Transit on Twitter and then Facebook as well if, you, if you're into that thing. 